You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the letter of Paul to the church at Rome, Romans 9. And we'll begin our scripture reading at verse 14. Last Sunday we read the first part of this chapter. We continue with the second part this afternoon, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 9. Let us listen to the word of our God. What then shall we say, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he has also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. 
And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses this. The canons of Dort, articles 15, 16, and 18. In our series on the canons, then, we have come to article 15, reprobation described. Holy Scripture illustrates and recommends to us this eternal and undeserved grace of our election, especially when it further declares that not all men are elect, but that some have not been elected or have been passed by in the eternal election of God. Out of his most free, most just, blameless, and unchangeable good pleasure, God has decreed to leave them in the common misery into which they have by their own fault plunged themselves and not to give them saving faith and the grace of conversion. These, having been left in their own ways and under his just judgment, God has decreed finally to condemn and punish eternally, not only on account of their unbelief, but also on account of all their other sins, in order to display his justice. This is the decree of reprobation which by no means makes God the author of sin, the very thought is blasphemous, but rather declares him to be its awesome, blameless, and just judge and avenger. Article 16, Responses to the Doctrine of Reprobation. Some do not yet clearly discern in themselves a living faith in Christ, an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, a zeal, for childlike obedience and a glorying in God through Christ. Nevertheless, they use the means through which God has promised to work these in us, or these things in us. They ought not to be alarmed when reprobation is mentioned, nor to count themselves among the reprobate. But rather, they must diligently continue in the use of these means, fervently desire a time of more abundant grace, and expect it with reverence and humility. Others seriously desire to be converted to God, to please him only, and to be delivered from the body of death. Yet they cannot reach that point on the way of godliness and faith which they would like. They should be even less terrified by the doctrine of reprobation, since a merciful God has promised not to quench the smoking flax, nor to break the bruised reed. Still others disregard God and the Savior Jesus Christ and have completely given themselves over to the cares of the world and the lusts of the flesh. For them, this doctrine of reprobation is rightly fearsome as long as they do not seriously turn to God. Article 18, not protest but adoration. To those who complain about this grace of undeserved election and the severity of righteous reprobation, we reply with this word of the Apostle, But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? And with this word of our Savior, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? We, however, with reverent adoration of these mysteries, exclaim with the Apostle, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, the phone call came from a distraught daughter early in the morning. Please, pastor, would you visit my mother? She keeps saying that she belongs to the reprobate and that she is going to hell. We've told her over and over again that as a believing child of God, she is mistaken and that she is instead going to heaven. But nevertheless, she does not believe us and keeps on repeating that she is reprobate. That was the gist of the phone call. So in due time, I put on my coat, hopped in my car, and over I went to make a pastoral visit. Yes, and the daughter was right. For no sooner did I enter the house, and this elderly lady told me the same thing. No matter what I said, no matter what scriptures I quoted, no matter how much I discussed with her, she remained convinced. Domine, I'm reprobate. I cannot be saved, and I'm going to hell. But then, as I kept on listening to her and talking with her, some suspicions did enter my mind, and I asked her, are you on any medication?" Yes, she replied, the doctor has given me prescriptions for sleeping pills and antidepressants. Oh, and I take them too. Now that sounded rather normal and ordinary. But how to explain this strange talk? Here was a sincere, committed, elderly believer who could not get her mind off the subject of reprobation and the conviction that she was going to hell. And finally I asked her to get her medication and to show me what she was taking. She did so, and what was the situation? Well, she had confused her sleeping pills with her antidepressants. The antidepressants that she should have been taking regularly, she was taking sporadically. And as to what she was doing with the sleeping pills, well, I haven't quite figured that out to this day. In any case, when all of that was sorted out, and it was, it took a number of weeks, but finally this sister's life returned to normal, and her spirits revived. She was her old, happy, believing, hope-filled self again. Now, that's an interesting story, right? But it's also more than that, for what this woman was wrestling with in her depression uh, was among the worst fear in all the world. Her mind was dwelling obsessively on the teaching of reprobation, and its consequences. Yes, and it's now to this teaching that we have come together this afternoon in our series of sermons on the canons of Dort. 
On the one hand, we may wish to skip this most challenging of all teachings, but on the other hand, it is among the revealed things of God, and it's also among those things that we confess together. And so I preached to you this afternoon on the following theme, reprobation, the most difficult teaching in all of Christian doctrine. And we're going to look at its repudiation, its explanation, and finally its application. Well, beloved, we begin with the basic question, what exactly is reprobation? To many people, it is different things, but all of them, it is equally distasteful. It has been called, for example, a horrible decree or the most ruthless statement, a terrible theological theory, an illegitimate inference of logic, and a lot worse. Here, in short, is a teaching that has come in for more than just a little bit of criticism. And why is this? Well, part of the reason has to do with the way in which many people understand it. For example, there are and there have been Christian authors and theologians who speak about double predestination. And by this they mean that God predestines in two ways, to heaven and to hell, up or down. From before the foundation of the world, they say, God not only chose some people to salvation, but he also chose other people for damnation. And just as actively as he sends some on the road to heaven, so just as actively he sends others on the road to hell. So what's wrong with this picture? What's the problem here? Well, a number of problems come to mind. First, does this teaching not make God out to be a heartless, cruel, vindictive, and relentless tyrant? How can one love a God who arbitrarily sends some people to heaven and others to hell? And in the second place, the question is asked as to whether or not this view does not make God the author of sin. As he causes some to believe it is said, so he causes others to disbelieve. And as a result, he cannot escape being blamed for man's unbelief, sin, and rebellion. These people go to hell because God wants and sends them to hell. Well, such is the view called double predestination and some of the objections to it. It's a view that treats God as being equally active in both election and reprobation in what we call a symmetrical or balanced or similar manner. But is this really so? Is this really true? Others respond and say that there is no such thing as a double predestination. There is really only, they say, a single predestination. The Bible only teaches us about a God who elects and not a God who rejects or reprobates. And to some extent that's the direction in which the Arminians wanted to go. 
Look at the rejection of heirs, Numbers 8 and Numbers 9 on page 544 of your book of praise. In, in number 8, they want to deny reprobation altogether. In number 9, they want to make election purely a matter of foreseen faith and not at all of God's good pleasure. And so the Armenians leaned in the direction of a single predestination and then a predestination that depends on man. Now on the surface that sounds attractive. But as we think harder on this question, we have to ask, how can this be? How does this work? How can we say that God elects some people to salvation and then stop there. What about those who are not elected? What about them? What's their status, their condition, their future? And of course we can say, well, we don't know. But is that honest? Is that true? Is the salvation of our God a salvation in which we know that some are elected to salvation and as for the rest, we have no answer at all for them? Is that a satisfying biblical response? Hardly. Single predestination may seem like an attractive approach to take. But in the end, it raises more questions than answers. And so what now? If both double and single predestination are problematic, where does that leave us? Well, beloved, it leaves us with the need to take a closer look at what is said here in the Canons of Dort. Turn, for example, to Article 15 and, and read it carefully. And if you do, you can see that it takes quite a different approach. It maintains the grace of our election, and it also maintains the reality of reprobation. Only then notice what it says about this reprobation. It says that some have not been elected or have been passed by in the eternal election of God. Notice it uses very careful language here. It says that some people are not elected. It says that some people have been passed by. In other words, it's not so that God condemns or actually sends anyone to hell. What he does is pass them by. What he does is not elect them. And then, too, we need to understand clearly the background for this. It is not so that God is here dealing with a humanity that is neutral or has done nothing either good or bad. Way back already in Article 1 of the Canons, the stage is set when it declares that all men have sinned in Adam, lie under the curse, and deserve eternal deaths. You see, beloved, we're speaking here about mankind in rebellion and in enmity with God. 
Our starting point is a humanity in sin. A humanity that is moving step by step closer to condemnation. And what does God choose to do in such a situation and with such a humanity? He chooses to elect some to salvation. And he chooses to pass others by. And as it says, leave them in the common misery into which they have by their own fault plunged themselves and not to give them saving faith in the grace of conversion. In addition, he chooses to show mercy to those whom he elects. And he shows justice to those whom he passes by. Now, of course, I realize at this point some of you are thinking to yourself, but, you know, is this biblical? Where in the Bible do we read about this? Well, beloved, perhaps the best place to look is where we have read together in Romans 9. We, we read the last part last week. We read the second part this week. And in that challenging chapter of Holy Writ, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a huge burden. And it has to do with those of his own race, of his own people, of the people of Israel. And he asks, what's to become of them? In the past they have received so much, but now in rejecting Christ, they have turned their backs on the gospel. And in turn, all of that raises the question, has God's word with its promises failed? And the answer in Romans 9 verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. Paul says the word of God stands, the word of God succeeds, the word of God always accomplishes its purpose. And then Paul elaborates by saying, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all of the physical seed are also the spiritual seed. Not all are elected. Some belong to the reprobate. Yes, and to support that contention, he gives a number of illustrations from history. Number one, he says there is the case of Isaac and Ishmael. The first belonged to Israel in both flesh and spirit. The second belonged only in the flesh. The second Paul says, think also of the case of Jacob and Esau. The first belonged physically and spiritually, although with many faults and shortcomings, whereas the second belonged only physically. And in the third place, Paul points to the case of Moses and Pharaoh. The first, he says, belongs both physically and spiritually, and the second belonged, he says, in neither way. And of course, that third illustration is different from the previous two. Pharaoh's ancestry is different, but nevertheless, he is not so different from Moses. Both were raised in the same court. Both ruled the same land. Yes, and both were sinners. 
They have more in common than we realize. And yet God elected the one and hardened the other. Or else God elected the one and passed by the other. Electing some, passing by others. That's what God does. And in the end, the Apostle Paul, you can see that sums it up in verse 18 by saying, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he wants and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And that's the way it is. God can have mercy on whoever he pleases. And he can harden in sin anyone who, like Pharaoh, is already living in it. That's the way it is. But just because that's the way it is doesn't mean that we like it. You can see, beloved, almost immediately the Apostle Paul anticipates the questions and the objections on man's part. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? And that's only for starters. All sorts of other questions come to mind as well. Why did he not choose Isaac and Ishmael? Why did he not choose Esau and reject Jacob? How can he harden Pharaoh's heart and still insist that he's responsible? And how can he pass by others with his grace and spirit and not be guilty of discriminating against them? Is any of this fair? Is any of this right? Well, beloved, in the end you will notice that Paul does not list nor go into all of the possible objections of man. But rather it's as if he suddenly holds up one hand and places the other hand before his lips and say, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what his form say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, Whenever you raise your voice to God, Remember just who you are and what you are. You and I are like clay. We're dust. And that really means that compared to God, we're nothing. And indeed, so many of the problems associated with the teachings of election and reprobation arise because we forget just who God is and precisely who we are. Ever since those days in the Garden of Eden, we have been seduced by the words of the devil, you will be like God. 
And you know, according to our fallen nature, we think we are God. According to that nature, we so often assume that we are equal to God. And according to that nature, if we think God is doing something that we don't like or disagree with, we think that we can tell Him a thing or two. But how wrong we are. Whenever you think of your relationship to God, think of a father with his children, think of a king with his subjects, think of a shepherd with his sheep. But also do not forget to think of a potter with his clay. Think of how he takes some dirt and adds some water. And then begins to shape it as he sees fit. Or as his mind takes flight. He can make it whatever he makes up his mind to do. And so it is with our God. He is the potter. And you and I are about the clay. And we need to ponder that deeply. Oh, and as we do so, as we do so, however, we do not need to be stricken with fear. You know, that's what happens to some believers in moments of spiritual struggle, in times of serious sin, or in bouts of deep depression. Some of God's children may be seized with the fear that they belong to the reprobate. So what should you do in those moments of doubt and dread? Well, Article 16 of the Canons gives some sound pastoral advice. First, it anticipates these fears when it says that God's children are not to be alarmed when reprobation is mentioned, nor to count themselves among the reprobate. And secondly, it addresses our fears when it adds that we must diligently continue in the use of these means, fervently desire a time of more abundant grace, and expect it with reverence, And humility. And thirdly, it calms our fears when it concludes a merciful God has promised not to quench the smoking flax nor to break the bruised reed. In other words, beloved believers in doubt receive triple advice here. In the first place, you need to concentrate on God's means of grace, namely His Word and His sacraments. Take the Word seriously. Read it, study it, believe it, apply it to your life, live according to its preaching and its teaching. And take the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and receive those promises of adoption, cleansing, and renewal with a happy and eager heart. So the first medicine is to avail yourselves fully of God's means of grace. And in the second place, live a daily life of faith. 
and godliness. In my introduction to this sermon, I made mention of that elderly lady who was convinced that she was damned. I, however, as her pastor, was not convinced at all. And why not? Well, because I had known this lady for many years and I knew that she was a child of the Lord, that she was a faithful, committed believer. And that there was just no evidence that she had given herself over, as the canons mention at the end of Article 16, to the cares of the world and the lusts of the flesh. You see, beloved, there is just no way that those who seek the Lord, even with many shortcomings and failings in their life, will not find Him. And there is just no way that those who ask the Father in heaven to help them will not get an answer. And there is just no way when those who knock at the heavenly door will not see it open to them. Rightly do the canons point to the comforting and famous words of Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I ask you where in the Bible, where in all of history, Has God ever turned his back on someone who earnestly sought him? The scripture not say, if you seek me with all your heart, you will surely, surely find me. And that, beloved, is a basic biblical theme. And so, beloved, we are to continue in the means of grace. We are to live a daily life of faith and godliness. And in the third place, the canons say, continue to live your life in hope. Remember, for example, the patriarch Abraham. You remember how he was given all of those glorious promises by God about inheriting a land and inheriting a great people and about having a great Savior and Messiah? Did he see any of it in his time? Did any of those things really and truly and fully come to fruition in his own lifetime? No, they did not. But he knew that a time of more abundant grace was coming. The canons call it a time of more abundant grace. And come it did. And Jesus Christ, it came. And Jesus Christ, who calls out still every day, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It came in Christ, it's still coming. In Christ. 
And so, beloved, it has to be said that this doctrine of reprobation is difficult. And I'm sure there are many other questions that we haven't even touched upon that you would like to ask and have answered, but does that concern me? Well, I don't want to appear heartless, but I would say in some ways it does not concern me. You see, we've been dealing together these past Sundays with the most exalted, sublime, mysterious, majestic, wonderful subject in all the universe, namely our God. And if I could explain to you everything about Him, in all of his ways to your complete and utter satisfaction, then I am sure of one thing, that he is not God. For if I could explain everything about our God, then neither he is not God, or I would be his equal. But I am not. He is God. He's the God that I love and worship. He's the God that I honor and obey. He's the God that I seek and serve. The God that I trust and depend on. But He's also the God of unimaginable glory and of unapproachable light. And we need to understand that. And that's why the last word can never in our life be a word of protest. But it always has to be a word of awe and adoration. And therefore, together with the Apostle Paul, I want to confess, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the Lord who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Beloved, together with the Apostle Paul, that is my last word. Also, when it comes to the deep doctrines of election and reprobation. And what about you? What is your last word when it comes to this God? and to all that he does. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.